And the prophets come along over and over and say, the whole thing is bullshit. That's not what God is. God is justice. God is played. God is not timeless. God is played out on the stage of history. It is not a thing. It's not like a certain state that we get to through a ritualized act. It's how we show up in our everyday lives and how we manifest the love of our hearts and our awareness of greater connectedness inside of our social structures. And by the way, those social structures are not permanent like laws of nature. They're created by humans and can be changed by humans. And not only can they be changed, we have a duty to change them to forever furthering alignment with a divine creative force. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, I want to start this episode by thanking you. Thank you for listening along. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. Thank you for all of the wonderful reviews that we've been getting on iTunes and the other uh, podcasting platforms. It's just been incredible to watch this show grow. And we've been producing it for over a year now since Mental Health Month in 2019. Uh, and for me, it's just the greatest joy to bring you a new episode every single week. On this week's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Simon Mont. Simon is an incredibly interesting individual, uh, super insightful. I really enjoyed our conversation. He brings a decade of experience as an alternative economies lawyer, facilitator, and organizer in a variety of communities. He's been an organizer in Oakland, a canvasser in DC, a school teacher in South Arkansas. He sat in circles at San Quentin Prison and Burning Man. He's been in zip ties and hunting tree stands and has held hands to sing and to block traffic. Nowadays, he shuttles between Boulder, Oakland, and San Francisco, cross-pollinating his ideas between the worlds of grassroots organizing, business, technology, and wealth. His company, Harmonize, is a consulting and coaching practice that helps leaders understand the connections between dimensions of organizational and social change and calls on each of us as individuals to begin building the world that we deserve. Simon and I recorded this episode on April 30th, so it's been a little bit over a month uh, since we had this conversation, and it was an extremely interesting conversation. We spoke about governance versus government. We spoke about social justice. We explored different traditions, including our own. There were a lot of topics covered, but in listening to the episode last week, or at least to the introduction to the episode, I realized that uh, releasing it in these times, now it's June 9th, 2020, uh, felt a little bit tone deaf, particularly given that Simon has spent the last decade doing work on himself and in community to fight injustice, particularly injustice around race and racism. And so Simon and I got together and had a conversation about what the next best right action would be. And for the first time, I decided to re-record uh, a new episode with Simon we went live on Instagram last week to create a conversation and a space particularly geared towards white 
individuals who were struggling to make sense of the current protests, uh, the ass of our black and brown brothers and sisters. And Simon has since launched something called White Resilience Circles, which are created in order for white people to have a safe space to explore all of their emotions and ideas that are coming up around white privilege, racism, uh, the institution of racism in America and around the world. And it was uncomfortable, uh, frankly, for me to have this conversation because I, I'm a beginner on this journey of allyship. I don't have the toolkit that Simon has in terms of evaluating these complex subjects nor do I have the experience that he's built. And so if you want to listen to that conversation, I'll also be releasing that episode um, without any editing on the podcast platform. And it's also available on my Instagram TV. My account is Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. Uh, but I didn't want to scrap this conversation because I thought that there was a lot of really, really compelling ideas in here. And you'll see that Simon is extremely articulate, at times poetic. Uh, I learned a ton. I continue to learn and improve and grow, and that's part of what this platform is about. It's a space for me to explore my own curiosity and questions uh, and to build self-sovereignty and tools to just get better. Uh, and so this is the beginning of these types of conversations. If you want to listen to another episode on uh, allyship and diversity, you can tune into the conversation with Mariam Ajayi. And, and that feels like even, I mean, that was recorded two and a half months ago. And I feel like in that space of time, I've already learned so much. Um, I highly recommend the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo for those of you that are trying to uh, better understand these subjects. I've been reading that as well. And I'll post a link to the white resilience circles that Simon is hosting. Even the word white, sharing the word white or um, creating spaces for white people brings me discomfort. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem and why conversations like this are so important. Simon addresses that concern around minute 40 of the Instagram live conversation. So you can check that out. Uh, yeah. And I hope you enjoy this chat and I hope that you learn a lot and I hope that you enjoy the second conversation, which I'll be posting shortly. Thank you. All right, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast, Sight Unseen. Glad to have you here, brother, from all the way across the world, loving the technology these days. Yeah, I appreciate you making some time to chat with me. It's always good to like follow a, follow a mutual connection that we both trust and admire. I just make mm -hmm. a habit of that. It's like whenever that's there, just go for it and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, uh, this is an introduction from Andrew, Andrew Murray Dunn. Andrew is, for those of you that have been listening, uh, the first guest ever on Look Up. He's the creator of Siempo and, you know, 
has a lot of thoughts around how to redesign technology, but has actually moved his, his innovating mind into how to redesign systems in general and organizations and the structures that make up our current societal frame. So redesign. So I think, I think the language they're using, he's rolling over there with one nation. I think they're using the language of redesign civilization. Redesign civilization. Exactly. And I know that's, um, that's an area I think Simon that you, you touch on. So I just wanted to just lean into some of the work that you've been putting out. I'd love if you could tell the listeners, uh, what your definition of collective transformation is. Hmm. Small question. <laughs> I'm just starting off big, man. Small That's it. You, I got well, a whole list. You want it? Collective. <laughs> you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna like hook me up with the questions beforehand. You're just gonna be like, "What's collective transformation?" Um, I don't know. I mean, definitely, I don't know. Um, awesome. That's a good starting point. But I'll just start talking and see what words come out. Um, I think, I think there's something there. There, my experience of it is there's some ineffable spark that resides within each meat sack. Um, so there's like an ineffable spark that we are that's kind of finding its way um, to navigate the relationship between its separateness and its unity with all of earth and to like manifest and blossom into its fullness the same way like a seed kind of wants to become a flower. So it's like there's this process happening. Um, inside of each of us and that it kind of requires interconnection certain types of interconnection between other humans and between other human and non-human things in order for it to be able to kind of fully get to flower status Um, so when I think about it it's like we're kind of got to engage in that process individually but then we also got to be like reflecting each other and relating in ways that cultivate that And of course, this whole game, this game is also being played inside of these bigger social structures. So like, it's kind of harder to get to have your seed help to become become a flower. It's, you know, a little harder to do that if, you know, you're kind of under constant threat of state violence. That's a different context. So the existence of that threat of state violence is inhibiting this all of the seeds becoming flowers. So we need to be able to get rid of the state violence in order to help that process happen. So that feels like how I think about it, maybe on like an individual center level. It's like, how do we create the conditions for our own personal um, personal journeys into the fullness of our being, however we choose to define that? So that feels like one level. And then I do think there's like, it's useful to think on like another level of like, how do we, when we don't think of the individual consciousness or ego or whatever, or self as the primary unit of analysis, it's like, how do we create an organization that, ref- that, that reflects the majesty and beauty of nature? So as a unit, as a unit of humans, we're as inspiring, as beautiful, as aligned, as fluid, as emergent, as a natural ecosystem. Um, mm-hmm. 
And then, yeah. And then we can also think about in the same way, like, part of the individual journey is, like, navigating my relationship with false constructs of my own self and ego. Like, I have to shed certain things inside of my own being for my own liberatory journey. Collectively, we have false egos, right? There's a false ego of, like, what what it means to be a man, for example. That's just, like, anchored into our society, and it exists in all of these different places on policy levels and individual consciousnesses and in uh, media and art. It's all over the place. So we have to be able to separate separate from that on that kind of in the so in the same way the individual has to shed an ego structure or a false ego structure in order to inhabit a more true one we're kind of playing that out at societal levels too yeah <laughs> and by the way like awesome <laughs> there's some words oh, no. like, like fell into some real poetry there and it was just it was just like i don't know like collective transformation you're really gonna drop that on me right away like i think i saw it on your website and i was intrigued by it um but that's a beautiful description and yeah understanding kind of how we're all we're all moving from that slowly but surely and in, in some some different belief systems through multiple um existences and in other belief systems through multiple dimensions through this process of self-discovery, big S, capital S, self. Yeah. And that, that seed of separateness kind of growing and blossoming into the collective um, consciousness and how that's happening at the individual level, the societal level, cultural level, organizational level, political yeah. level. I love... Um, I love how you brought up kind of this, what it means to be a man. You know, I had a conversation with Andrew Horn um, just a few months ago before this whole coronavirus situation. And he leads a men's group called Wejunto. And that was the first question that I dropped on him in our conversation was, what does it mean to be a man? Um, and, you know, it was, it's interesting. There's just so many constructs that we're all exposed to and heard you in one of your talks mention kind of the sensitivity that you have around the perspective that you bring to these conversations because of your unique socialization and identity that has been cultivated over the last 30 plus years um, or 30 or so years. I actually don't know exactly how old you are. Um, Got it on the net now on the head, 30 years. There you go, brother. So I, I think that's fantastic. And you know, you've been you've been involved in kind of work on this this transformation at a systems level uh, prior to your current work with Harmonize, while you're working at the Sustainable um, Economies Law Center. Would love to understand a little bit more of the work that you were doing there, and kind of how it ties into this idea of collective transformation or regeneration or shifting culture or however you want to describe it. Um, well, Sustainable Economies Law Center is a fantastic crew. I couldn't ima- have imagined a better crew to land in after, after I graduated law school. Um, and the short version is that all across the country and world, there are people who are trying to reimagine what our economy looks like. An economy in 
you know, if we, we think about it's like etymolo etymological roots, it's actually management of the home. So this concept is actually how do we manage our home here on earth and in our physical homes, and however we define homes, how do we do that in a way um, that actually uplifts life? So there's people who are trying to trying to create these things and and um, um, and they look like land trusts, they look like commons ownership, they look like um, worker owned cooperatives, they look like um, lending circles. So all these different formations that humans can come into to take care of each other and steward our resources for the collective betterment. So people are doing that. Um, in the United States in particular, we actually have a legal system, a legal and political system that is designed to squash those things. Um, our legal system is not built to create economies and relationships that uplift life. It's built mm -hmm. to extract from people and planet and to incentivize and protect extraction. So the, what the law center is doing is figuring out how those people who have beautiful visions often rooted in black and brown liberation traditions or indigenous traditions, um, how their innovations, which are in many ways just rememberings, um, can interface with the law to create economies um, that serve people and planet. So that's what they're doing. And when I fell into that, and they do it on like every level from you know, redesigning compost law to creating bylaws for worker cooperatives to you know, community-owned solar, like really beautiful things. Mm -hmm. um, my work was was actually when, um, thinking about how nonprofits worked and how governance worked. So similarly, we have people, there's this pattern, right? People want to come together to do something good in the world. But in the process of coming together, we recreate many of the formations and patterns that underlie the very systems that we're trying to transform. So... You know, you, and that happens a lot in the nonprofit world, right? You have you have radical people who are critical of corporations come in and they become a nonprofit, and all of a sudden they're operating internally like they're a corporation. You have hierarchies, you have weird power dynamics, you have all of our racism, our sexism, our classism expressing itself, all of our wounding and traumas playing out. You have all that stuff happening. Um, so the question we asked was, how do you? start to unwind that um, inside of a nonprofit in particular. Speaking so how do you manage? Big, speaking of big questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't figured it out. I don't, know, I don't know anybody who has. But we started doing that. And then particularly in the context of nonprofits, which have its own like financial funding ecosystem, they have some specificities. Mm -hmm. But that was the work there. And that, that's what spun out um, into like the practice I have now of working with people and organizations. There's a few avenues from that response that I think we could, we could go down. Uh, one I'd like to one kind of like thread I'd like to pull on there is you mentioned um, kind of especially in the U.S. the system of government uh, was created to to support extract extraction. Do you think that that was intentional or an emergent phenomenon over time? I mean, what does intentional mean? Um, mm. I don't know. I'll give two examples, though. Um, 
early property, early um, real property, so land law, um, there was a case, and I'll spare you the really boring details, no, but I essentially, love, I love boring details. <laughs> essentially, the case came down to whether indigenous people owned a certain piece of property or not. Hmm. Um, and it was based on, and then the theory that was used is based on John Locke's theory of property, um, which is you don't own nature, but you own your own labor. So if you mix your labor with nature, that nature becomes your property. I don't own a tree, but if I cut it down and turn it into a boat, I own the boat. Hmm. It's basically this thing. Uh, when applied to the indigenous, when the courts apply this to the indigenous way of living, they said, look, these people, though they have been here for centuries, at least centuries, they haven't been cutting down trees. They haven't been changing the landscape. They haven't been, they've been living in reciprocal relationship with nature, but they haven't been changing it to bend it toward their will enough. So therefore it's not theirs. Therefore, and essentially, and therefore it kind of became the white man's because we were mixing our labor with it. Um, and then that kind of, what is one of the things that laid the foundation for, laid the foundation, foundational rationalization for how to continue um, seizing legally in quotes, seizing land from native people. Um, that mm -hmm. along with something called the doctrine of discovery, um, which was a papal edict. Um, and then the judge who wrote that actually in the, it's, it's eerie, like in the um, article or in the, um, in the case, he said, he essentially says, this seems really, really immoral, but I can't not do this because these are the rules I've been set to apply. And I am, he says, the court of the conqueror, right? So wow. is this, is this intentional? Is it emergent? I don't know what's the difference. Um, but I do think that it's important to track, like, in the system itself, there is this seed of it. Um, and then another example is just how early oil law worked. Um, essentially, we incentivized the, the first people, the first people to drill and get to something became the owners of it. So you're incentivizing people to go and do a bunch of stuff and changing, you're incentivizing people to drill, change the landscape, seize things as quickly as possible. Um, and then take from them. Um, so that's it. And you, you know, people with more legal expertise than me can also outline some aspects of labor law and all this stuff. But yeah. what? Um, that's those were some really powerful examples. So thank you for sharing that two pieces of information that I certainly didn't know. So I'm learning a lot already. Um, what? sort of changes to our existing systems do you believe to be the lowest hanging fruit? Hmm. No, I think it's interesting. I, uh, 
I often think in terms of like what we have, what people have the immediate power to touch. Mm. Um, and I often, I also think about like process. Um, so I think that we have some, what I like to think is, is our organizations, every organization that we're in, every community that we're in can become an incubator of a different way of being in the world, a different way of thinking about power, a different way of thinking about sharing and the commons and um, and being in right relationship with ourselves and, and nature. So it feels like, and to me that, that at least the way I, I, my consciousness works is like, I, I can feel it when I'm in a group of people. I'm like, okay, how are we gonna be together? Um, so I think looking, I think one thing that folks can do is like looking and seeing how the big systemic things that feel like they're beyond their capacity to um, to touch or change, how those things are reflected in their immediate lives and starting to work to try to, to change and work with those dynamics. Um, and yeah, and, and I don't know where, where, where lots of, I, yeah, I don't know policy, policy wise where low hanging fruit is. Right now, it feels like there's a, a lot of <laughs> very high fruit, and and in some ways, the when I go toward looking for the lower hanging fruit, I'm almost a little resistant, and maybe that's because I don't have a good answer, and I'm just avoiding the fact that I don't have a great answer, and wanting to look like I know some shit, <laughs> um, which could be very real. That could be everything I'm saying right now could just be a rationalization of not having a good answer. <laughs> well, I thought I thought it was a good answer. I mean, re- reflecting back, what I what I heard you say is basically the lowest hanging fruit is at the individual and community level, and activism is through the way that we interact with every person that we come into contact with in every organization or community that we're a part of, and that's where it starts, rather than having some idea of exactly what needs to change or what needs to be fixed. It's identifying how it's how ideas that you don't necessarily ascribe to are being reflected in your immediate community. Yeah. And yeah, that reminds me, there's this other pattern. I think it's cool for us all to watch out for is like, there's a way I've been conditioned to think. And I think a lot of us have been conditioned to think, which is kind of a, like, if I was in charge of the world, what would I do? You know, what are the, po- what policies would I create? If I was, what would I do? Um, which is kind of, which is not the same as saying, if I am exactly who I am right now, how do I build relationships and collective power that enables a different world to emerge through my relationships? There's these two different, two different threads. And oftentimes if we go with the first, even if we're like super well-intentioned, like what would I do if I, you know, was the puppet master, even if I, all my ideas are great. Often what we do to become the puppet master is recreate all the power over systems, recreate all the domination because we think when we get to the top, it'll be different, but it's not because we've recreated the whole system on our way there. Which I do all the time by mistake. (laughs) so then that actually i think brings us to another interesting 
topic that you've been working on, which is uh, collaborative self-governance. So what, what is collaborative self-governance for listeners who might not understand that phrase yet? Um, and kind of how are you working with organizations today and individuals to reshape how we think about governments yeah. without the collaborative self? <laughs> yeah. I think the first thing, first thing is just, you know, we want to separate out government and governance. Government mm-hmm. is a um, locatable structural thing that exists. Governance is the way that we come together to make decisions about what matters to us and how we're going to allocate resources and how we're going to organize ourselves to actualize our our values and build the world that we want. It's that process we use. And government, like state government and national government, is this one manifestation of our collective process of governance, of making our decisions and stewarding ourselves. So governance is just deciding how we're going to be together, what we're going to be doing. Um, Self is when we do that, we make those decisions for ourselves. So the people who are impacted by those decisions that are going to be made about how we relate to one another and steward resources are the people themselves that make that. And then collaborative is the best word, just one word for saying, and how do we do that in deep, like deeply authentically and deeply in good relationship with ourselves and each other and the earth in ways that allow us to be our, our, our process of creation and our process of decision-making is aligned with our own hearts and is aligned with whatever this larger divine flow is that's moving through us. How do we do it so that we are doing, we are, we are getting ourselves to operate in the same way that geese operate in the same way that bees operate in the same way an ecosystem operates, which is like fluidly tending is abstract version of that question. Hmm. And how, how do, just kind of pulling on that a little bit more, like how do bees, geese, ecosystems operate? What attributes of those ecosystems um, can we learn from? Uh, well, geese is great. Geese, um, it looks, when you look in, at the sky and you see geese in a flying V formation, mm. um, it looks like there's a leader, but there isn't. Because the, per, the, the goose at the front will rotate to the back over and over. So at any one point, there's a prime leader that's cutting, that's kind of breaking the air and, um, and being the front end of that aerodynamic unit. Um, but it can't sustain its position there. It gets too tired. Mm-hmm. So it rotates back and forth. So if you look at that structurally, you see like, wow, it's really useful to have this one one leader and it's unsustainable for that person to be the leader all of the time and it's not a privileged position the e i i my guess is that the goose does not have an ego crisis when it realizes it's it's time to give up that position <laughs> right but you ask you ask a founding executive director of a nonprofit who is experiencing 
burnout, oh, burnout and is starting to get unhappy because they're so overworked and underpaid, they're, they are the front goose. You say, hey, maybe it's time to shift your position. There is a identity, often an identity crisis. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so the egoless nature of the geese is something that we could aspire to. And, and I, I, when I, I see goose also the, that the structural thing, the like a leader, the, the location of leader is useful. The identification of a certain person as the leader constantly might not be. Hmm. Um, and we can build our systems in that way. Have you ever read the book, The Starfish and the Spider? Because you just, you just reminded me of it. No. So it's cool. It's about, it's basically about um, centralized um, organizations and decentralized organizations and how the spider, if you, if you cut off the center, it dies, but the starfish, if you cut off its limbs, like one leg can grow back to become a new starfish. And so you, the starfish is the resilient, the example of the resilient organization and, and the spider is the example of maybe the, you know, the efficient or bureaucratic organization much faster moving than the starfish, but it's not as resilient. Um, but there's an example in there. And, and the reason I bring it up is because I've seen in your work that you talk about indigenous cultures and clearly through your previous comments, you have um, quite an understanding of what they went through historically in the U.S. But it talks about um, this, this work speaks about how the, I believe it was the Iroquois uh, were the hardest of the Native Americans for um, the Spanish and the English, who then became the Americans, to um, to conquer. And the reason was they didn't have a leader structure. So whereas with the Aztecs, I believe, and, and check me on this, the conquistadors went in and they cut off the head of the leader um, with the Iroquois, whenever they took one leader down, another one stepped up similar to the geese. And it was this beautiful dynamic of leadership through example. So it wasn't, they didn't select a leader. The leader just emerged through his, his actions in this case, because it was, it was the warrior leader of, of the men. Um, but I, I find that to be a really interesting example. And, and following that with a question for you, like what, what um, have you seen in indigenous people and their systems that you think we could today um, adopt that would benefit us individually, collectively? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. want to like clean up a couple of things for myself before I answer that. Um, with that starfish and the spider thing, I think another great, a great reference point for folks is emergent strategies by Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes a lot of these similar concepts and also weaves them in with like a radical black feminist lens. Um, so I think that's a really great spot for folks. Um, as far as like the, indigenous history i'm you know i'm not i don't i want to be careful about how i weave my limited awareness of that in Mm -hmm. um so 
there's two things I'll point to. Um, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. is a really great thinker who did a lot, a lot about um, weaving indigenous wisdom and 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 kind of legitimizing that. Not that it needed to be legitimized in the context of the West, but um, in the context of kind of white colonial thought. But Vine Deloria Jr. is a, a, a great spot for that. Um, and then I think for me, a lot of the indigenous governance stuff beyond kind of, you know, interacting with people and, and kind of picking up through feel, um, the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute is another Ooh. great spot. Um, and then one of the things that I learned from, from them is just basically how they frame governance. So if we look at like a, a kind of white or colonial thinker, governance is a lot about power over, it's a lot about control, and it's a lot about systems and structures. Um, and the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute, they're like, they're, I, I'm not going to be able to quote exactly, but they have these different spheres of what governance is, including like worldview and language and relationship and relationship to nature. So they're just general notion of like, well, can you imagine if in our, um, in our halls of governance, we were like, really we're really wrestling authentically wrestling with how our how our language is communicating the extent to which we're connected or disconnected from one another and saying how do we how do we part of governance is learning how to speak to one another in ways that invokes our relationship um, learning how to reference the world around us in ways that cultivates a certain experience of the world that's part of what governance is um, so that was one insight and i think generally um my experience in uh, in working with indigenous folks and hearing their forms of governance is there's a, a a real emphasis on right relationship to land and right relationship to spirit and the interconnectedness of the world is taken as a given at all times and there's constantly things that are invoking that um, and um, and recognizing that. Um, and that to me feels essential. And also knowing that like when I say indi indigenous is a complicated word generally, because when I'm saying indigenous, you know, I can say there's, you know, these are experiences, experiences and insights I've gained from particular, like the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute is one, and then kind of certain readings largely from people who are indigenous, who whose people are indigenous to this continent that I'm on, which they call now an English turtle island. So still, you know, this is me rambling saying, I think I have some useful, here's some stuff I think, but I'm trying to be cautious because I really like, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to be that pat, you don't want to, we, we don't want to be in the pattern of me being this white dude talking about indigenous wisdom. <laughs> yeah, why not? Because then I'm recreating it, right? Because it's, then what's happening, and I think it's, I think a, it's a kind of fine line, but it's like, imagine, imagine if you had a, had a meditation and you, you know, you went out and you fasted and you had this insight and you able, and you, and you wrote this poem um, inside to encapsulate your, your, your insight and it felt core to who you are. And in a certain way, 
a the poem communicated some things, but it was the transfer. It also was just a record of the transformation of your being. So when you spoke the poem to someone, it carried the words and it also carried an energy and an embodiment and a history of all of your being. Like that was what it was. And you told me that poem. And then I went somewhere else and started reciting the poem and didn't even, and maybe I say, yeah, Mark wrote it. And maybe I did, don't. But it's not the same. Hearing the poem from me is not the same as hearing the poem from you and being with your experience of it. Um, so if I were to just report what I've learned by reading Vine Deloria Jr. and talking to some of my indigenous friends, if I were to just do that, and we were to think that that was the same as being in the full embodied presence and wisdom of the carriers of these lineages, we'd be reducing their entire thing into this stagnant word thing. So while I can do some message carrying i can do some translation i mean there's not there's nothing all i'm doing is trying to report what i know based on some powerful experience that was channeled through somebody else so don't yeah. talk to me go hang out <laughs> yeah that's kind of how i'm feeling about it right now oh man i yeah there's some there's some ideas in there that i that i don't agree with yeah bring um, it if I, if I went and I meditated and I had a beautiful experience, oh, sorry, I'm knocking things over, um, and I wrote a poem and I shared it with you and it touched you and you thought it was so beautiful that you wanted to share it with others with the intention of spreading that, that, that beautiful idea, like why why are ideas like i feel like what you're describing is patterning of separateness like it's actually creating further separateness by saying these are their ideas and i can't speak them because i was socialized in a different way as a child and because i come from a different background it's perpetuating separateness rather than saying wow this is incredibly beautiful wisdom that has come to me through someone else that is universal. And I choose to share it because more people need to hear it. And yes, I'm in a privileged position as a white cis male, but the idea itself, the kernel of, of what it represents is so important. You know, and then when we start to when we start to tiptoe, like I know I can tell from this conversation and from your other work that you truly care and, and you are extremely sensitive and empathetic to cultural differences and you don't want cultural appropriation to happen. But here you are spending so much energy trying to be politically correct. And maybe that term itself, politically correct, is a weighted, has a weight to it or carries some meaning. When, you know, like, I just, why can't you share that, that beautiful knowledge in a way that is just, it, it, it is rep a representation of just, this knowledge is, it is wisdom, it is beautiful, it, it's, an, it's a, another way of thinking that I've adopted. Like, why can't we adopt? Why does adoption have to be appropriation, I guess? Yeah, that's interesting, because I vibe with all that. Um, 
I think most of what I'm saying is like, I'll share the wisdom I have through my experience that I've synthesized from all other places in the world, none of which is mine, because that's how wisdom works. It's, you know, accrued and synthesized from various sources. And I'll do my best to, uh, to point back and talk to people about where, where, what's, where it is so they can follow threads, you know, and, and explore deeper. I think Mm -hmm. what you got, my, my reaction was mostly probably in reaction to the, the language of the question, which is like, I'm happy to share wisdom that I've gained, but I feel limited in my ability to say what is indigenous wisdom. Right? I don't feel like I'm not, um, it's just, not, I, I, it's not an area of, ex, of expertise enough for me, um, either learned or lived, for mm-hmm. me to start speaking under that name. Just like if you were to ask me a question about chemistry right now, I would say like, uh, here's, maybe I know some stuff, but like, I'm not a chemist. <laughs> like, I'm not a chemist. <laughs> like, like if you really want this, I, I read this book one time about chemistry. Uh, but if you really want this, there are chemists out there. Um, yeah. So it's not, it's not more, it's, and I think, but there's just an added, added, there's just an added layer to that, which is like, and these are people who have been like, yo, we have this wisdom for a long time and and there's a pattern of people not pointing back um or speaking on behalf of it so there's all these other power dynamics um mm. in terms of how we're relating that i'm that i'm sensitive to and i think it's also worth worth mentioning like i'm doing my best to navigate a complicated complicated terrain and and there are ways one of the things i'm working through is is what exactly what you pointed to which is how do i stand in how do I stand in my own truth unapologetically in good relationship um, with other people without being too nervous um, about all of the all of the patterns that I will definitely step in, which I'm sure I am in this moment. Yeah, I mean, because we're human, you know, and I just I feel there's so much energy expounded on so much energy spent, like you're, I just imagine and wonder, you know, if you took that energy and applied it towards the other work that you're doing, or perhaps this is a part of your work, but it could, it could open new doors because, you know, like, I guess I don't feel like I personally don't feel uncomfortable sharing, you know, yoga, yoga tradition. Um, and the wisdom of those teachings, having read, you know, a few books, right? Like, but like direct source material. And because that, because yeah, like, I think it's implicit in, in my persona that my knowledge and experience is limited. It's just already there. It's like, it's like maybe the, the word that's coming up for me right now is like caveat emptor, right? Like buyer beware, like it, Yes, I'm spe- I'm speaking what's true for me. It's the responsibility of the listener to say, okay, where's this person coming from? Who are they? And how does that what they're saying reflect that? Um so so for me, I guess what what I just reflect kind of reflecting back what I what I hear when you talk about the chemist versus the word indigenous is with the chemist, it's like, it's a ref link because I don't know. 
with the word indigenous, it's also like a ref link because I don't know, but also I don't want to offend anyone. Oh, I wouldn't say offend. I think it's a, I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell someone else's story for them in a way that isn't in integrity and in good relationship with those people. And I don't know, like, so like right now, for example, I know things, there's things I'm pretty sure I'm clear on about the Iroquois Confederacy and its relationship to like the birth of the American government. Um, There's things I know, um, but I don't want to tell that, tell that story, have someone think that that's the story because I'm not clear enough inside myself about that. Um, so instead what I'm trying to do is actually create kind of a wall of like, like here's some stuff I know. And this isn't, this isn't my zone. Um, you want to talk to me about some, something that is my zone, then I'll cite the source and say, Hey, I know. And it'll be more fluid, but it's kind of like, like, I don't, yeah, I guess, I guess what was happening was I was being cautious of, of being a mouthpiece saying, here's what, here's what I believe in governance according to indigenous values is that's not a question i want to answer i don't know enough to answer that question got Um, it what i think the reason i asked that question just going back to it is you know like in your work you reference the australian indigenous um sorry governance institute governance institute uh in in a couple of presentations that you made and you know you speak carefully as you do now, you know, about your relationship to that, but it seems like you've done some work there and you've put in time and you've done research. And so, you know, that's why I asked. Yeah. I think my, like my magic sauce would probably be like, the thing about me is not that I'm the ex, it's not that I've gone 10,000 miles deep into indigenous governance institute, Mm -hmm. indigenous governance. That's not, that's not me. Um, Mm -hmm. What is me is I've gone a mile deep into indigenous and I've also gone a mile deep into um, kind of black radical. I've gone a mile deep into feminist. I've gone a mile deep into high performance teams and cutting edge management. And I've gone a mile deep into, um, you know, teal organizations and spiral dynamics. And I've gone a mile deep into, you know, Buddhist, Dzogchen Buddhist practice. So I've kind of gone a little bit in a lot of spots. So I have a pretty keen sense of like the overlaps and what's trying, what feels like it's trying to emerge through a new formation. Um, and why, so I got like, like, like I'm pretty clear on why, right. What, like people talk about teal organizations. I'm pretty clear on why the people talking about teal organizations and spiral dynamics are talking about the same exact thing that feminists, um, that feminist organizers were talking about in the 60s and why that's also tied to um, the things that indigenous people were doing before English was spoken on this land. So, so what, are, what are, and it's so interesting that we're, we've come to this point because in my head earlier, I had the question of like, I, I'm curious because you also, in, in one of your, in two of your presentations, there's an image of you blowing a shofar. And, you know, that's, that's our lineage, our shared history, culture. Ironically, I feel like I, I know more on an intellectual level about, you know, 
yoga tradition and, and that philosophy that I do by my my own. All right, so there's a call. I mean, a couple a couple good good little little ones. Generally, generally the Torah is um, filled with all these stories of people trying to reach, you know, godliness or enlightenment or Buddha nature, whatever you want to do it. They're trying to reach this thing. Um, and my favorite thing about the Torah is that every single person who is in there is fatally flawed. There is no, there's no person you can look to and be like, they did it. Every, every single person, um, no matter how powerful or how um, um, lauded they become, they're all shown as with these, with these human characteristics and with this inability to discern what is their like full transmission of a divine intelligence and what is them getting caught in their patterning of their ego. Um, and it happens over and over. So I think that to me, that's like an essential lesson for all of us is like, doesn't matter how many awake experiences we have. It doesn't matter how um, enlightened or connected we feel like we are. We're always need to be looking at, um, at our ability to delude ourselves, right? Our story, Abraham, one interpretation of the story, Abraham, is he gets so deluded by his belief that he can hear the voice of God that he starts to believe um, in this voice enough that he's going to kill his son. Like that's how off the rails he got with it. Um, <laughs> so I think that's a great story. Um, what's another? I mean, my my personal one that's like been a been two two. There's two other ones that feel like essential to to my own experience of the world. Um, in so yeah, imagine in, in, in Jerusalem, everybody's coming and they're like, and they have this whole system of spirituality based on sacrifices and everyone's coming and they're like feeling the presence of God, feeling the presence of the Holy, but it's also like an economic structure that's putting priests at a, creating a priestly class um, and having um, people feel as if the center of their, as if they can kind of absolve themselves of sins and get closer to God through this ritualized act. And there's huge, massive political, social, theological artifice. And the prophets come along over and over and say, the whole thing is bullshit. That's not what God is. God is justice. God is played. God is not timeless. God is played out on the stage of history. It is not a, thing it's not like a certain state that we get to through a ritualized act it's how we show up in our everyday lives and how we manifest the love of our hearts and our awareness of greater connectedness inside of our social structures and by the way those social structures are not permanent like laws of nature they're created by humans and can be changed by humans and not only can they be changed we have a duty to change them to forever furthering alignment with a divine creative force that's the fucking like Jewish prophetic message, mm. which to me bur like burns deep in my own heart and soul and is eminent, yes. eminently relevant for today because we can say the same, we can say the same damn thing about burning man. Mm. Right. Yeah. That, you know, I've stood around, I've stood around the, t I've been in that temple. I've st stood around with 
thousands of people feeling a burn, feeling the connectedness of all humanity, feeling the cosmicness of the ritualized act. I've sat in meditative rooms and had big awakenings. I've gone and I've fasted and I've done the thing. And that's not the end of the game. The game, like from the Jewish perspective, the prophetic Jewish perspective is that's the beginning of the game. Now, the question is, how do you act like that in every moment of your life, knowing that moment wasn't even special? The only thing that was special is you realized it. You realized what was going on in that moment. Now act like that all the time. Um, and again, that's a, you know, I couldn't have said what I just said without Abraham Joshua Heschel, but I could feel a lot more, a lot better. You know, I'll go in. I will go in with Judaism. I won't go in with like indigenous tradition. I'll go in with Judaism. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. That I got one so more. so good. I got one more too. Well, I'm going to hold off on the one more because I want to hear it, but I want to, I want to, you know, I want to be heard, man. I got to say something. Bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it. I know, I know. We don't need just me just fucking. No, no, it's all good. I, lo- I love it. I, um, I feel you. And, and it's funny because you mentioned Burning Man and the fact that Burning Man got canceled this year, you know, physically. It's like maybe, maybe it was time for, for that, you know, that structure to, to be burned down for a little bit. Right. And because as I think, you referenced with the change that we try to make in, in at a community level. If we're coming from like that top down perspective, all of a sudden we adopt all of the, that which we're trying to change in the process, as you mentioned earlier. And I feel like Burning Man is such a clear example of that over time, becoming more and more like the world that it claimed to, you know, depart from. Um, and still hold space for all of the incredible, beautiful magic that happens in that place because it, it is extremely powerful when you allow it to be. I'm curious, kind of one, like who were the prophets that were coming by and being like, hey, like this shit's gonna end? I mean, there's a bunch. Isaiah is one of the one of the kind of he's my favorite, like um highly political ones i mean he's the one who gave us beats beat uh uh beat swords into plowshares um but there's a lot of um there's a lot of different different folks who came on and they're the folks who were naming the naming the contradictions inherent in the political systems that had emerged in um in what's now the state of israel and jordan and syria like they're so they're they're naming all these things and essentially they're the ones who said hey like hey people in power who call yourselves children of israel divine yeah y'all really aren't acting like it um you really really aren't acting like it and let me tell you let me tell you why um and reminding people that this voice, the voice of, um, as I think Heschel puts it, it's um, the reflection of humanity through the eyes of God is the prophet's role. It's like, let me show you, let me show you how, what you could be, like the beauty and divinity and sanctity of the human experience at the very same time that I'm going to show you what you are. 
which is falling short of that and try to pressurize uh, returning. So a pressurize, that's a shuva, pressurize like, so you need to come back into full alignment with what you really are. Um, which again, like that's that's the central message. Like it's one of the central Jewish prayers, the Shema. It's like, goes, hero Israel, Every it's a statement of unity, a statement of love. Like everything's one, so love. And the next paragraph is, and if you don't love and you don't act in right relationship with each other in the earth, then your ability to produce food is going to get fucked up. The climate's going to get fucked up. So, <laughs> so remember, and then the next paragraph is, so remember and teach your children and put things on your body and do rituals to remember and never forget that. So that to me feels like this, mm. you know. Yeah, and I feel I feel that I feel like where we're at at a systems level globally, kind of bring it back up to that macro level, is I feel like we're there right now. I just feel like there. It feels insane in an insane world is maybe kind of like what comes to mind. Like just looking at what's happening right now in this moment in time under this kind of like coronavirus situation, just the, the faults, the cracks in the existing system. And I guess, how can we reflect back to the people? Well, we are, we're all part of these systems. So it's, it's like they've grown beyond human but how do we reflect back? How do we take the role? We as individuals and listeners take the role of, you know, the prophets, let's say, and reflect back like this is not working. This is broken. And I'm going to show you another way. Yeah. And, and then follow on to that, because I had wanted to ask you this. And now it feels like the right time is like, as we go through systems change, how, how do we adjust for you know, for, for the inevitable, potentially what I feel is like inevitable pain and suffering that comes from those that benefit from the existing systems as they're, as they're crumbling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, totally, like what, what ideas do you have around like, how do we, how, like the how behind impacting this, you know, this change, these changes, changes in governance, changes in policy, changes in systems? Yeah. Well, I think there's one, a theory of change that I tend to subscribe to is you build, um, and I think I got this from John Powell, um, but you build, build the alternate reality inside the shell of the old just start creating it and as the old one starts to so you build let me start up. you build the new reality inside the shell of the old and you make the new reality as irresistible as possible and then when the old starts to crumble and everybody goes oh no oh no oh no and they look around and say what should they do what should we do They'll look and you'll see this other reality already coming into emergence. And, and then that new reality just has to onboard people. Um, and that's what I think right, our, a lot of our social movements are doing right now. A lot of our new economy work is doing right now is they're saying, 
as people wake up and they say, wow, like this is really, this is really terrible. Like our medical system was not prepared to accommodate this crisis because funding for it had been cut out under severe austerity measures that then gate that helped bail out big banks. Like this is nonsense. There's a whole bunch of people who are ready to say, hey, yeah, that thing, that's called colonial capitalism. And we have this other thing. We have this new model of um, commons-based stewardship of resources and collective ownership um, and pressure and like um, things that and policies that can protect us from unfettered market phenomena. We have this already here. All we need to do is just start stepping into this. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think it's part of it is like, we got to be ready for the, I, we got to be ready for the ego death. Like the, the like, and the deep identity, I'm trying to stop using ego death, but like the deep identity. Crisis. Why, 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 what don't you like about that one? Um, again, this is something I'm, you know, encountering in my, in my study of Judaism right now is like, and in, in my, in myself, there's a difference between when I, view my sense of separateness as something I want to transcend and die versus something that I want to integrate back into wholeness. So I'm just playing with it a little bit. Interesting. But that's like a deep cut. I think that the pointer of ego death is being like, like a certain way of thinking of self. Like there's certain false artifices of self that are going to need to collapse. Um, and I think that one of the things that we can do is help people find different anchors of identity. So if my entire identity, for example, if all I feel like I am is a great, um, you know, a great stock market trader, my entire identity is built on being a stock market trader and being wealthy and having a yacht. If that's all I think I am, and there's nothing else that I have, I will cling to the system that enables me to have that. I will cling to that till I die. But if I understand that releasing that system and releasing that identity isn't really dying, it's creating a new space for a new, more beautiful, heart-centered, loving, relational thing that will actually make me feel better. If I and, and there are people ready to catch me and invite me into that, I'm much more likely to release it. Um, and it's the same with everything that's holding us back. So I think we need to be able, like, the people, it's like the people who are the most stuck in stuff. Um, who are perpetuating the system the most, in some ways, it's like those are the people who need the most help understanding that when they let go, somebody, they're not letting go into death, they're letting go into a new sense of belonging. So we need to prepare that sense of belonging and that sense of self for them. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You're having fun with that one. Well, it's good. Is that I, mean, I don't know. Like, like, what? Like, what are we talking about? I guess. I guess it's like it's just like to. Of course, like, none of us know. But you're here to share your ideas. You know, yeah. like or ideas of other people th through you that you so carefully cite and source. <laughs> I don't know. It's. I guess, I guess you know what. I guess it's just like because there's a part of me who there's a part of me that wants to know. There's a part of me that really wants to be the one that knows, and I really want to be an expert, and I really want people to look at Simon and say, oh, Simon's so smart, and oh, Simon has all this stuff. Like, I really, there's a part of me that really wants that shit, and there's a part of me that believes it. There's a part of me that believes it. 
Me too, Matt. So why don't I just <laughs> fucking laugh at myself? You know, why don't I just laugh? And you know, we can measure we can measure whether we know shit based on whether people's hearts and bodies and souls open up when we talk. And other than that, who knows? <laughs> I feel the opening happening. So we're we're a little over an hour, but there's one more story for you to share. So I'd love to hear the third. Oh, cool. The third yeah. of our culture, and then I'd love for you to just drop the mic, and you can leave the listeners with whatever nuggets of wisdom that flow through you, whether it be the Simon that needs to be the one that knows, or the Simon that needs to show he's the one that doesn't, or the Simon that actually doesn't. <laughs> oh God! That was dope, man. That was. The Simon that wants to show that he doesn't know is also the Simon that wants to show that he knows. knows. Yeah, exactly. And the Simon that's saying this is the same one. Who knows what's going on right now? I know. Once you start to peel back that on it, it's fucking crazy, man. Trust me. I'm like, I feel you. I feel you on that. Oh, I love it. And I love how, like, oh, I just think, thank you. Thank you for 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 making me laugh oh so nice <laughs> feels so good to just laugh at the absurdity of this shit yeah you get so very serious sometimes when i put on my oh, podcaster my. voice yes yes <laughs> when we talk about spirituality and what transformation. is the collective transformation what is collective yeah. transformation <laughs> i have no <laughs> i don't know it's just some word that i put on my website relax <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the story though the story is <sighs> this is a good story it's a good one okay i hear you and again <laughs> just to cover all of my just to cover all of my neurotic pro- politically correct bases right different interpretations of this story i'm just going to share one um and somebody else talking about judaism would talk about completely different stuff uh, <laughs> I'm sweating um, over here. Whatever, whatever. All right, look, here's here's what's up. This dude. Is... Okay, there's um. So. So there's this Jew. There's this Jew. Jew walks into a bar. Jew walks in. Jew walks in. All right. All right. So. We're just super, super fast version. Super, super fast version. Okay, it's not okay. super fast because I'm Jewish, so I'm going to say way more. <laughs> what are we talking about here? Um, <laughs> all right, so Jews are, Jews are in Egypt. They're doing the thing. Um, they're enslaved. They leave Egypt um, for four, and then they travel in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, a lot, like one of the interpretations of this is because um, the, the, the little quote is it, ta- it takes. It's harder to get Egypt out of the Jews than it was to get Jews out of Egypt. So the idea mm-hmm. being that like when people when Jews are enslaved in Egypt, which may or may not have actually historically happened, but mythologically, when when a people are enslaved, they are also inculcated with a certain ways of relating and mindsets. So it take it took a whole generation to try to start to transcend that. Um, but then they get to they get to this the um to what is to what they call like the land of Israel. Um, and Moses, the leader, by the way, doesn't actually get into this promised land because he, in some interpretations, is so still inside the mindset of like 
of of being enslaved that he can't get into this new way of being. They get into the new way of being and immediately enact a whole lot of violence all over the place, um, largely based on fear and conquering. So it's so they they continue the cycle. Uh, they recreate the cycle of oppression of oppressed becoming oppressor, oppressed becoming oppressor over and over. P.S. Parallel to the current state of Israel. But that's oh not where man, I was just about to drop that, but I was I <laughs> held my tongue because I'm not an expert in that area, and I'm an American, not an Israel, <laughs> Israeli. And so, in honor of not putting my foot where it doesn't belong or opening my mouth, I I wasn't going to do it. But I feel you. That's ex- the carrying of the fear of the hate of the separateness and oppression that came to this place. It's, uh, it's hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, as a, as a little side note, I think that it's an incredible, it's a, there's a lot going on there, but on one dimension, an incredible case study of the cycles of oppression and the ways that, um, trauma and wounding and fear can become violence um, and then create and then loop over and over. Um, and a lot, I think it's, yeah, so having compassion for everyone there. But the part of the Jew story, so they create, um, so then at some point they create, they, they, uh, they get a king, right? They want, they want kings, they have judges, they have kings. Mm. Um, like the, the first king, Saul, like loses his mind. Um, and then there's this priest, um, Shmuel or Samuel and Samuel's like traveling all over the, you know, we, like, I think people, like people listening to this are probably, probably like the word shaman is probably a good way. He's like traveling around doing ritual, blessing people, um, kind of holding, the, like trying to invoke the divine presence in the whole land. And then people say, Hey, Samuel, um, we want a new King. We want a king to rule over us. And Samuel's reaction, first reaction, is no, you do not. You don't want a king because as soon as you have a king, it's going to limit your freedoms. You're creating your own system of oppression to live inside of. Um, he's going to dominate you. He's going to enlist your people in war. You're going to be in never-ending wars. You don't want a king. And they say, yeah, we do want a king. He says, why do you want a king? He says, well, we're scared of all the other nations. All the other nations are, could war and they have kings to lead them. We don't have a king. He says, don't be afraid. If you're aligned with the divine truth enough, you won't have to go to war. If you're aligned enough with peace and interconnection, you won't have to go to war. And they say, no, we're still afraid. Besides, we want to have a king so we can be a nation like all other nations. And he says, no, you don't, but I am your servant, so I will anoint you a king. So he anoints a king. And... Immediately, immediately, actually, I think Saul comes after this, but immediately the, um, uh, there's another, there's a whole book, hundreds and hundreds of pages of kings after kings being terrible. <laughs> so inside the Jewish holy book is this beautiful moment where people are like, we're afraid. We want war. We want to protect ourselves against war. We want to be a nation like all other nations. We want to embody an oppressive political structure for our own safety because that's what other people are doing. And the voice of God says, no, you don't. And then we get hit with 300 pages of proof of like, no, you really didn't. You really, really didn't want this. <laughs> and like, what 
And like that to me is the message for our social movements, the message for everything for me, like that's this message that I live by. It's like, no, even though it's scary, even though it might feel terrifying to not be an oppositional, it might feel like you're naked and alone, even though like it seems like we have to be able to go to war. The only solution to end it is to just not. And we need new political structures and we need new things and they need to come from a sense of our divine interconnectedness. That to me feels like it. That's my Hebrew name, Shmuel. Mm. So that's my like, that feels like the fire burning. And mine is Moshe, <laughs> the one that didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful, brother. Thank you for mm-hmm. sharing that wisdom. Yeah. So fun. Such yeah. a great conversation. So great to meet you. First yeah, time. Great to meet you, yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Wink. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I, I knew your face from that uh, that movie about the fire festival on Netflix. So you know. <laughs> you <go away> <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's that yoga guy. <laughs> that yoga guy, man. <laughs> he told him. He told him not to do that thing. <laughs> Uh, thank you for your time. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing. Anything else you want to leave with the listeners before you go? Man, may all our hearts just feel full of love and joy and acceptance. And may this little chat that Mark and I have be of service in some way, in some plane. And may we all, including myself, take the reminder to keep fucking laughing. Mm. Amen. <laughs> yeah, thank <yeah>. you, brother. <laughs> all right. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. 
And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.